Right, well, thanks for the reading, Warren, and uh, thanks so much for the invitation to be with you this morning and to look at this really glorious truth as you've been working through the Apostles' Creed and we come to the last couple of sentences uh, and there it's, it's a magnificent gospel truth to spend some time dwelling on this morning. Uh, you'll, you've got a sermon outline there and hopefully that will help you follow what I want to say and you might want to take some notes there. Uh, you'll notice that lots of the points have multiple Bible verses referred to underneath them. I'm not necessarily even going to mention all of those in the sermon, but if you want to think through it more, you might want to uh, sit down and look through them this afternoon or t- during the week. Uh, and largely, I probably won't stop and kind of get you to turn your Bible up to a passage and read it out. I'll just kind of refer to them as we go along. Uh, but if you have your Bible there and you've got it open at 1 Corinthians 15, that's probably going to be a good place to kind of stick, but we'll look at other parts of the Bible as well as we go. Well, as we come to hear God's word together, please join me and let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, that your word speaks to us uh, about the whole of our existence and especially that you give us hope for the future. Help us to grasp that hope now uh, and to live for it and to rejoice in it. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, at the end of the Apostles' Creed, uh, most of what you've thought about uh, and and traced through the Apostles' Creed is what God has done in the past. You thought about creation, about Jesus, his birth and death and resurrection and ascension, uh, about the gift of the Holy Spirit. And you've thought about the present, uh, what we have now because of Jesus and the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. So having seen the past and the present, the very end of the Apostles' Creed turns our attention to the future. Of course, there has already been one reference to the future in the Apostles' Creed where it says, Jesus shall come to judge the living and the dead. But now at the very end of the creed, we see what that means for us. What does it mean that Jesus should return uh, and in, judge, in judgment? And what else does that uh, entail for us? So this last couple of phrases of the Apostles' Creed deals with the question, where are we going? And as we start to think about that, I think it's worth observing that that is a question to which our culture gives very garbled answer. If we ask the society around us, where are we going? Uh, Wow, what a mixture of answers. On one hand, you get a kind of nowhere answer. We're all just going to die and that's it. Life's short, make the most of it. There's nothing else. Another answer to that question, which is probably even more depressing and more worse, is not just that individually we're all going to die, but we're together as a human race and as a planet heading for a disaster. Uh, it might be climate change catastrophe. It might be 
social collapse, it might be global nuclear war, but there's something coming that is absolutely catastrophic. On the other hand, there's utopian dreams. This idea that actually we can all get together and make things better than ever, transform our world. Especially we'd often in our culture say, technology will save us. That's where the future lies. There's a whole literature out there about a transhuman or posthuman or superhuman future. Uh, just la- at the end of last year, uh, an Australian academic, Elise Bohan, published a book called Future Superhuman. This is what she says towards the end of the book. She says, A superhuman future is humanity's best shot of achieving a sustainable future. Uh, humanity will be hard-pressed to make it through this century alive if we do not invent technologies that render us less susceptible to short-term thinking, cognitive biases, tribalism and human stupidity. And she expects and hopes that our technology will enable us to overcome our own stupidity and save ourselves. So we ask our society, where are we going? And we get all those kind of answers and a whole bunch more as well. But the Bible gives us God's plan for the future. And, and it gives it to us you know, wrapped in his promises. This is not a kind of secret plan. God tells us what he will do. He promises what he will do. And those promises are grounded in Jesus and especially in Jesus' resurrection. And they give us a genuine hope of true human life. And that's what the end of, this, of the Apostles' Creed is about. I believe in the resurrection of the dead and life everlasting. So let's think a bit about what the, what the creed is talking about there as it summarises the Bible's message of hope. And I think one first thing to say is that in popular culture and in Christian circles as well, we often talk about the future as being about being in heaven. I think it's good to be clear that uh, that's not really the way the Bible talks about what our future hope is. Uh, in, in the Bible, heaven is the realm where God lives. It's where God's glory is shown. It's where he rules perfectly and where Christ rules now. And the Bible does say that when Christians die, uh, they go to be with the Lord. And so they are in heaven with the Lord. But when the Bible talks about that, about where Christians go when they die, it's always with a, a sense of incompleteness. That's where they've gone now, but there's something more coming. We're looking for not just to heaven, but to a whole new creation. So Jesus himself talks about the renewal of all things that's coming. The Apostle Peter says, we're looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth the home of righteousness. Uh, in that magnificent vision that the Apostle John has in the book of Revelation, the last part of that, the beginning of chapter 1, John says, I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. So God's 
promise for the future is a renewal of the whole universe. It's not about us going to heaven, but about heaven and earth coming together so that the creation itself becomes fully God's realm and we are with him in his presence. And I say that because resurrection and everlasting life uh, make sense in the context of, the, of a new creation. Uh, Jesus has been raised from the dead and is ascended bodily to his Father in glory. When Christians die, they go to be with him. But when he returns, he'll claim this world as his world and renew it. And it's that, in that context that he will raise, his, raise all who are his to life and to glory. Now, if you're like me, when you start talking about that, it raises a whole bunch of questions. What's that going to be like? Uh, what, what will my body be like? Will I recognise my friends? Uh, will we be able to do things like go for a run or ride a horse or drive a car? What, what, what's this new creation going to be like? Uh, and I think the thing to say is it's it's beyond our imagination. We, we really can't start to answer those sort of questions. Uh, in, in 1 John 3, John says, Dear friends, we are now the children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. What, we, what will be has not yet made, been made known. We don't know the details, but we know that when he, that is Jesus, appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So we look forward to being like Christ, but the details of what that's going to be like, we don't have answers to. So we've got lots of questions about the new creation and, and resurrection, and uh, lots of those questions are just going to have to wait until the Lord returns. But there are some very important things we can say from the Bible, especially about resurrection, and that's certainly where I want to focus now. So what is it that we can say about God's future for us. Uh, this future that is established now in Jesus and so he's going to define the future. He will share with his people what is already his. He's risen from the dead, he rules, we will rise and rule with him. And so one thing that's very clear from the scriptures is that that resurrection will mean real transformed bodies. Just as Jesus was raised physically from the dead, he will raise us. Uh, in 1 Corinthians 15 that we just read, Paul making the point in that whole chapter that Jesus' own resurrection is crucial for the gospel because our resurrection and Jesus' resurrection are tied together. And so he goes on to say there will be a resurrection of the dead. It's not just that Jesus has been raised from the dead. That's the first part of the, of the chapter. Uh, but the section Warren just read for us is really about and what that means for us in our resurrection. There'll be, Jesus will re raise real bodies. In some sense, these bodies that we have now. And yet they will be utterly transformed so Paul describes it like this 
uh, in verse, starting in verse 42. So it will be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. He goes on to say in verse 45 that now we are like Adam, but Jesus has been raised and glorified. And so, verse 49, just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, that's Adam, so we shall bear the image of the heavenly man, that is Jesus. Um, so our bodies will be raised, but transformed. In an incredible way. Uh, Paul describes the transformation in these words. Down in verse 51. I tell you a mystery. will not all sleep. That is, not everyone will die. Some will be alive when Jesus returns. But we will all be changed in a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound. The dead will be raised imperishable. And we will be changed. When, when people talk about going to heaven, it, it often feels really unattractive. That sort of idea of harps and clouds and angels. And, and I think one of the reasons that we, it actually doesn't, get very, doesn't excite us is because we're bodily creatures. Everything we experience and the great moments in our lives are, are about our bodies. Whether it's seeing a sunrise or smelling roses or listening to a symphony orchestra or holding a newborn baby, enjoying a meal with friends. It, it's all about our bodies. We relate to each other physically. We, we, we want to hug our friends and families. We, we want to see a face and hear a voice. That's the way God's made us. And it's not his plan to kind of get rid of that and scrub that out and turn us into some sort of non-bodily reality. He will change us, but it won't be by getting rid of bodies and physical creation. So we will be raised in transformed bodies. But what's that difference going to be like? What, what more can we say? Well, I think the best way to try and describe what this transformation means is to think in some contrast. So um, the first contrast is that it will mean life, not death. Uh, at present, we're all in the process of dying. In fact, just as I was driving down uh, this morning, I was listening on the radio to an interview with someone uh, who's a palliative care specialist and uh, talking about how you care for people facing death and families who are grieving. And right at the very end, the radio presenter said, uh, well, you know, th th thanks for talking to us about this issue that we're all facing, which you know, is true, but perhaps is not very acknowledged very often. Uh, all of us are in the process of dying. Uh, I'm currently at the stage of life where I'm watching that in my parents' generation. So my father and my stepmother and my mother-in-law are all in different ways facing the reality of death. My stepmother especially as she sinks further and further into dementia. Uh, their bodies and their minds are not what they were once. 
and uh, to the extent they're aware of it, which my father and mother-in-law certainly are, very frustrating and painful. But that's true for all of us. Our bodies are failing and falling apart. And death hangs over every moment of life. It's the great sort of enemy of meaning that even the person who's lived, lived the fullest life at, the, at, at their death, there, there is the question, what was that all for? and What was it about? And what was achieved? What did it add up to? So we cry against death and we protest it and we want things to be different, but we can't escape it. Our lives are surrounded by and overshadowed always by death until the resurrection, when death will be finished. In Revelation, uh, John hears God say, there will be no more death. Uh, Here, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, the perishable must clothe itself with imperishable, the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true, death has been swallowed up in victory. Martin and Katie Luther, the reformers in the 16th century, like lots of families, especially in that era, uh, had two, two, at least two of their children die young. The, the most tragic in lots of ways was their precious daughter, Lena, who was 13. And so it wasn't just a baby dying, as happened very often, but young woman who they thought had survived those perils. Uh, And to read about Martin and Katie's response is uh, heartbreaking. They were devastated. Uh, As Lena was dying, they tried to comfort her. After she died, they tried to comfort each other. And and the story is told that as Martin Luther was mourning, he could hear... The, the workmen outside nailing the coffin, uh, nailing the nails into Lena's coffin, and he cried out, Hammer away, she will rise again. And that's the resurrection hope that the new creation will end death for God's people. A second contrast is that it will be glory, not curse. God's curse will be gone. That's what death is. We we, we live now under the curse of God because of of our sin, and we see God's curse in the meaninglessness and stupidity of so much that happens and fruitless suffering and, of course, in the frustration and bitterness of death. But with resurrection, the curse... Not only be removed, but it will be replaced with glory. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, 43, Our bodies are sown in dishonour, but raised in glory. In Romans 8, Paul looks forward to when creation itself will be liberated from, the bondage, from its bondage to decay and will obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. 
God's glory is his overwhelming brilliance. Uh, it, 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 God's glory means that you can see his holiness and his majesty and his power. And so, of course, when people in the Bible encounter God's glory, they fall down as if dead. But God's glory is truly awesome. But in the new creation, with the resurrection, that glory will not only confront us, it's going to engulf us and include us so that we share in God's glory. In in Philippians 3, Paul says that Jesus will come and transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. So God's holiness and majesty and wonder will surround us and enclose us. It's not just the the curse will be gone, but the good of life now will be surpassed unimaginably, for we shall be glorified. A further contrast is that it will mean righteousness, not sin. Now we live with sin in our own lives, in our society. It infiltrates every experience. Uh, last year, uh, my, my wife and I had, our, we had some renovations done at our house. Um, quite a big renovation, and what that meant was dust everywhere. Not just in the rooms that were getting renovated, but every part of the house, there was dust on the floor and dust in the clothes and dust on the walls and everywhere. Uh, and, and sin is like that in our lives. It's just all through it. So much so that you just cannot get rid of it. Every relationship, every motivation, every imagination... Everything that we think is normal is actually abnormal because it's infiltrated by sin. You know, even our best moments, aren't they? Um, you know, the moment when you're, say, you're really focused on helping somebody, you're genuinely being unselfish, and, and then what creeps into your mind? It's a, a thought like uh, pride. Well, I'm doing this pretty well, aren't I? Or selfishness, I wonder how this person's going to repay me for what I'm doing. Or rivalry, I, you know, I wonder if I'm doing this better than anybody else has. Even in our best moments, sin gets in. And if we see the world God's way, then every day and every news bulletin and every event around us is heartbreaking because it shows a world that's turned away from Him. But the new creation will be the home of righteousness, where everything and everyone will serve God perfectly. Uh, Westminster Confession, when it's thinking about this, about the human will, says the human will is made perfect and immutably free to do good alone in the state of glory only. When we are glorified, We will serve God perfectly. That's wonderful. Not only free from the guilt of sin and the effects of sin, but completely freed from the power of sin. 
So Peter writes, Dear friends, since you are looking forward to this, living in the home of righteousness, make every effort to be found spotless, blameless, and at peace with him. If that's our future, then we'll be serious about sin. We won't treasure it. We'll be quick to deal with it. A final contrast. Resurrection and life everlasting is joy, not sorrow. Uh, the reality of human life now is we live with sorrow. We, we expect that. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. Because there's so much for which we should mourn. Our own sin, evil and injustice, a world gone wrong. Uh, our cultural aspiration that we'd reach some sort of contentment or calm or acceptance. In lots of ways, is very misplaced. Uh, we, live in, we live in a life now which we should be mourning. There should be a sense of affront and rage and yearning and longing for more. But of course, Jesus says, those who, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. In the kingdom, in the new creation, for that will be not sorrow, but joy. And the prophet Isaiah says, The ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them. And sorrow and sighing will flee away. And, and that joy comes from seeing God rule fully and, and seeing the end of death and curse and uh, God's people receiving our reward in Christ and knowing safety and security and rest and being embraced in God's family forever. That's everlasting life. Indescribable, but it will be glory and righteousness and joy. And yet I think we still haven't quite got to the heart of describing everlasting life. Because it, won't, it will be new bodies, but it's not just new bodies and no death. It's not simply a reunion with family and friends. It's more than joy and rest. Because God himself is at the heart of the new creation. So the opening words of Revelation 21 describing the new creation. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Later on in chapter 22, uh, describing that same scene, John says, The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his servants will serve him. They will see his face. They won't need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun for the Lord God will give them light. And if everything else we've thought about so far is unimaginably wonderful, this is even more mind-blowing. Adam and Eve walked in the garden with God, but not like this. And for us now, God is present, but His presence is hidden and secret. But everything God has been doing throughout history has been leading to this. His plan has been for his people to know him. And his promise has been, I will be with you. 
And in the resurrection and the new creation, that will be fulfilled. Those words we read from Psalm 16 will will finally come true. David says, The Lord is my portion and cup. Because you will not abandon me to the realm of the dead, nor will you let your faithful ones see decay, you have made known to me the path of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence and with eternal pleasures at your right hand. Dwelling in God's presence, God will be all in all. He will fill our existence with unutterable wonder. Uh, His life will supply and empower us. His light will illumine and bedazzle us. His holiness will purify us. His joy will enrapture us. That is everlasting life. So the Christian hope is that Christ will return. That the resurrection of the dead will come. And that's the beginning, not the end. C.S. Lewis captures this wonderfully in the last pages of the book, The Last Battle, which is the last in the series of the Narnia books. Uh, At that point in the books, the heroes have lived through Judgment Day in Narnia. They've finally met Aslan, the Christ figure, and he tells them this is the end of the Shadowlands, the old half-existence, he said. Uh, C.S. Lewis calls the chapter Farewell to Shadowlands. You might know that the play and, and movie about Lewis's life is called Shadowlands. And the Shadowlands are finished. These are the last words of the book. Aslan, first of all, speaks. He says, Your father and mother and all of you are, as we used to call it in the Shadowlands, dead. The term is over. The holiday has begun. The dream is ended. This is the morning. And as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this is the end of all the stories. And we can most truly say they lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning of the real story. All their life in the world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. We believe in the resurrection and life everlasting. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the sure and certain hope of resurrection. We thank you that Jesus is raised and ruling and promises that he will return, that he will bring with him the fullness of your kingdom and Share that with us, that the day will come when we see you in glory and indeed share in your glory. Uh, Fill us with wonder and joy and hope and anticipation 
through that and sustain us faithfully in this life that we might live with you forever. In Jesus' name, amen.